What's up, dirtbags? Welcome to episode 252 of the Midwest Angler Podcast. I'm Scott Sturman, and I'm joined, as always, by Matt Deitch. And we've got another special in the studio guest tonight, Scott Mockentoon. Matt, Scott, how are you guys? Doing really good. Doing really good. Doing great. Yeah. Yep. Although, yeah, he's, hey, I was watching America's Most Wanted tonight. Just, you know, you got to check up to make sure you're not on there sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were like talking about this guy, and they're just like, "You need to help us catch this dirt bag." And I was just like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute!" <laughs> yeah, you're throwing that around out here. Yeah, you don't just you don't just let anyone just go and go and do that. You want to know what the issue is? What's that? You're you're trying to figure out because you're not hearing it come through your your headphones. I can hear it in my headphones. Can you? Yeah, you. It doesn't seem like I'm coming through my headphones because that's. That's the mic. Oh, that's the mic. Oh, you switched up mics. Holy we got okay. three. We got three people here tonight. Three mics that were we're all over the place. It's it's getting wild. Like Matt wild. Matt is currently he's giving his headphones over to Mockintune. Holy. All right. All right. I'm up in the pecking order. Up in the pecking order. All right. Uh, so, um, episode two hundred and fifty-two brought to you by Dakota Angler in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, this week, uh, things on sale that are notable, Fluger try-on reels, uh, all sizes, $30, normally $50. That's a great reel for uh, a good price. Seamar uh, bait feeders. Is that how you pronounce it? Seamar? Seamar? Kmar? I thought Seamar. Seamar? All right, good. I just wanted to, that's what I've always been calling it. But uh, they're $15 off. And uh, Big Mac, uh, you actually uh, were up at Dakota Angler here the last couple of days? I did. I stopped in and I got great service from Josh. He recognized me right away. We talked smart. I got to see parts of the AFC Championship game and I got to give a fishing report so everybody could hear. And then the folks that came in behind me got the fishing report because they were heading back to the dead water I'd fished. <laughs> and they were from Iowa. They were from Iowa. They were good, God-loving, God-fearing Iowa folk. <laughs> yeah. All right. What, but, did, what uh, did you think of the selection in there? Pretty, pretty good. Selection, oh yeah. Wasn't it? And it was nice because I hadn't been in there in probably ten years. I mean, gosh, I, we can go back to. I mean, it's just you guys talk about it all the time. Just such a beloved bait shop. I can remember Todd's two-minute fishing reports and checking up on everything on the website and. You just get all that good information you still do to this day and a friendly smile and get you whatever you need. And, of course, I had to leave with a little bit of swag and uh, picked up one of those new, uh, oh, it's a, it's a Rapala, but I forget what the, it's a new release, but it just looked deadly for, for Lake Trout. I just loved how it lined up. So I'm going to hope, hopefully try that uh, in the month of March when I get back up to Canada. Right on. Right on. Um, this week, uh, we've, we're actually going to draw, well, we're not going to draw anymore. I already, uh, drew, uh, but now that we're talking about it, the Dakota Angler DA Sodak boxes, uh, that we advertised here. Um, after you put, uh, 250, 300, 400 names into, uh, your <laughs> random wheel generator, I believe I did that on Saturday afternoon. Took you the whole um, afternoon. Uh, took me a long damn time um we've got the walleye box is going out to uh watertown south dakota to dalton cook i'm i'm thinking could be coke cook um i will message you and uh we'll get that shipped out to you 
And I believe the panfish box is going out to Michigan to Andy Harrington. So uh, thank you guys both for uh, for doing that, uh, entering on the Facebook page, and we will get those both sent out to you here in the next couple of days. I will send you a message, not a fake message, the real, <laughs> the real, no not spam non-spammer deal. Uh, um, but those two are our winners, and uh, yeah. Um, I also, just to do a little bit of housekeeping, I want to uh, give a shout out to everybody um, that listened to, shared, uh, whatever you did on last week's episode. Absolutely huge. Uh, our biggest episode ever, yep. um, at, at least through the first seven days. Um, pretty incredible. I mean, Matt, Matt and I both were talking about it on Tuesday last week. Uh, um you know, just, just getting messages, you know, all yeah. day long, you know, everyone was like, wow, that, that one was incredible. And I don't know, it was, it was cool. A lot of shares and, uh, uh, you know, felt, felt good you yeah, know, really to, to hear just that, to get that message out there. It was such a good story. Um, and just, yeah, really eye opening. Yep. So, uh, you know, obviously James and Veltizen shared his story last week of, uh, of going through the ice and getting rescued. And I know that there was a pile of people that, uh, all pitched in and helped, you know, between calling nine one one and, and, uh, you know, doing, you know, throwing the rope, pulling them out, whatever. But, uh, absolutely wild. One of the four guys that, uh, pulled him out, Thane Jensen's uncle. You're all related in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> no that it was an awesome story it was a great episode one of your best and everyone loves a comeback story a human interest story so it was it was pretty awesome yep so uh thane actually reached out to me uh uh late last week uh said that he was going to talk to his uncle and i believe next week we're going to have his uncle on the show uh some people call him uncle a-hole I would, I would actually call him, uh, um, what, what they call him, but, uh, we're still in that bet with Mike Deitch and, uh, yeah, that's right. you know, got to pull another 10 bucks off of him. I was thinking with Mockentoon in studio tonight, like there is no way we're making $10 no. tonight. So, uh, if it happens, uh, I'll just, you know, whatever. But, uh, um, yeah, so I, I believe we're going to have, uh, Rob, I don't remember what Rob's last name is, but uh, we'll hopefully be getting him on next week to kind of tell that story, uh, you know, from the other side. And um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it should be a good one. It's you know we got that perspective from James last week, and uh, you know most of us are probably probably could end up being on the rescuing end than getting rescued end. So it's going to be interesting to see, hear his story of it all. Yep, absolutely. Th this year to me is the most gun shy I've ever been to get out on the ice. I mean, every trip that I've taken, including this past weekend, is you're checking, you're checking, you're checking, you're trying to figure everything out, and you're on pins and needles till you actually get out and see what you have. And even, you know, heading out and driving around, we ran into, this was on dry two, we ran into spots that were, 15 16 and we ran into spots that were six inches under a snowbank yeah that'll make yeah. you nervous oh yeah there's yep. no doubt and, and there's people driving trucks right yeah, out there no big deal like, like hell yeah like it's a normal january yep. <laughs> it's just yep. like uh, no no thank you and not one person fell in over at winter games this weekend i don't think and that's just crazy like you were, I, out of all the years but you know that's just the way it goes like yep. the years you would expect oh somebody's definitely going in 
it doesn't. But I also heard that there wasn't it wasn't as busy as it's been. Oh, in really? Past. Yeah, that could be. Which is actually wild, considering how nice the weather was and whatnot. Right. You know, it would have been the would have been the weekend to be over there. I think even some of those people uh, were a little gun shy with just the way the ice conditions are this year. Yep, yep, I believe that. All right, guys. Uh, well, obviously, uh, we've kind of got an impromptu. Um, uh, ask the biologist session uh, going to come down the pipe here. Uh, Scott was in the area um, for for doing some other stuff. Um, for those of you guys that uh, haven't uh, haven't heard of Scott before, uh, you're lucky. You're lucky for one. But uh, uh, luck ends tonight. Yeah, that's exactly right. But uh, this might be uh, our, our least listened to episode now. Yeah, that's right. But uh, uh, Scott does uh, fisheries uh, biologist work uh, up in uh, Minnesota. Um, we. You know, he's an acquaintance. We're not going to call him a friend of the show, but uh, um, he uh, I, we're not 100% sure if he's actually a wealth of knowledge or if he can just really put together a sentence. Well, but uh, Neither one of us can afford a full set of encyclopedias, so it's just nice exactly, to have a guy like exactly. this around. Yeah, sometimes you just shake your head and agree with it. So, yep. um, But, uh, no, uh, I guess to start off, uh, Alex Christensen um, fired us off a question. And uh, he wants to know why do crappies get so much bigger down in the southern states, you know, Texas and Oklahoma, but he thinks even, you know, maybe up up north, they get a little bit bigger than what we have here in Iowa. Would that be uh, just just the food that it is, or is that just social media that makes a person think that? I'm I'm just surprised that you're not going to get some free pot chats in before the questions start rolling. You, I was going to say we're not doing any random questions tonight. I had a random question. Oh, so. okay. Time out. Time out. Time I'll out. Come back and answer that. Yeah, yeah. We will. Sir, sorry, Alex. Sorry, I. I, I uh, Scott just. I was just, just excited to get the to details. the science. <laughs> yeah, you're all about the science. Yeah, so that's I, if you know me all day long. You're yeah, scientific, me, all this nerdy technology. Tech, words and stuff like that so yep all right all right matt what do you got i guess my i was hoping that we were going to fire it off and you're going to ask one but i'll ask i no, no i got it then i got it do you all right we're going out karaoke singing tonight what's your song oh you and me are doing a duet islands in the sun yeah islands in the sun. did i ask you this before <laughs> no no but okay. i just have it ready <laughs> okay just, okay no, he knew that this question that question is coming all right he's been prepared for that one for a long time all right i've got more no, well i guess we can keep doing it mine mine would be was it a fair catch no that's exactly <laughs> the point he did not signal correctly for a fair catch <laughs> oh man I'm going to have to take off this flannel because, like, my blood's already going. <laughs> but he might get drafted by the Vikings, and we'll put him to good work. Yep. Old Cooper. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, you, you got you got more random oh, questions no, that you want? kind of the only one that I wanted to you just You him. just wanted to get the fair catch one question yeah. out of the way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And we made it through it without you swearing, so that's a good thing. That is good. <laughs> All right. Uh, um Alex Christensen wants to know, uh, crappies, how come they're bigger for say in other States aside from Iowa? Sure. Uh, so they, they, they actually are, um, really getting to the same size proportions, whether we're talking black crappies or white crappies. Uh, if you look at those Southern States, you're right. You see some really large fish. The one thing you'll definitely see is, uh, much more impressive growth. So, Generally, the idea is this. If you're a northern latitude, and we're talking about the range of black and white crappie, if you're a northern latitude fish, you're going to grow slower but live longer. And you have 
you know, if all things being equal, if there's enough forage and productivity, you can get to the same sort of maximum size. Um, all things being equal. Because, yeah, you do see some giants in the north up in Canada. You do see some giants in the south. So, uh, you know, you look at some of those record book listings, and, yeah, a lot of the southern states have them. But if you can get a verified, you know, scale verified, and the verification standards are different, you know, modern day versus the past, uh, it, there's really that same sort of potential for size for both. So hopefully that answers the question. I mean, I would that would be my response is, there's a difference. Uh, those southern fish grow quick, grow large, uh, grow quicker, but but die sooner. And our northern fish just live longer, uh, but grow a little slower. Okay, hmm. makes sense. Um, I've also I've got a question here. Uh, Nick Heitkamp actually reached out to us, and uh, he actually sent himself a video. So um, I'm going to try to do this one here. So this question is for Matt. He, this might be a little more okay, time out. He uh, he, he texted right back afterwards and said, "I accidentally said Matt meant Scott." Like, oh gosh, so, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was back in school and I was like, a, I was trying to hide in the back of the classroom and I was getting asked the answer and I had no clue what was happening. All right, here we go. Pass. <laughs> so this question is for Matt. This might be a little more South Dakota driven, but still officially fisheries biologist question. So South Dakota in 2023 stocked 90.5 million fish. I've done the math. As you can see, of those 90.5 million, 88.88,295,978 88, of them are walleyes. Less than 6,500 of them are crappies and less than 135,000 perch are stocked. Why don't states focus on stocking more panfish and catchable fish opportunities for kids and families instead of focusing on the walleye? All right, so great question from Nick. So we're talking about a few different things that are in play here. Why is walleye far and away the lion's share of what's being stocked? Because they're stocking them at a particular life stage. They're stocking them as fry. That's when you get the economy of scale. We're talking about putting millions, millions of fish in uh, into specific lakes. I mean, if you're putting them in at 500 per literal acre, so acres under 15 feet, or you're putting 1,000, or, you know, there's lakes that I can remember stocking that we're rearing fish and putting them at 5,000 per acre. So it doesn't take long to add up to some really big numbers. That's why most of what you're seeing numbers-wise are lots and lots of walleye fry. Now to the panfish portion of that, um, typically not stocking a lot of panfish, specifically uh, we'll say crappies and sunfish because those are nest guarding species that if they have the right conditions, they're able to reproduce on their own. So aside from kids' ponds, you don't see a lot of stocking of those species. That's the one exception. Um, I would, I've seen that in Nebraska, you see that in Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota, um, some ponds in Iowa same idea right though those are generally um, stocked out for kids ponds for urban opportunities small town centers that sort of thing um, you know that's a fair question I would say if you want a more localized answer to that in South Dakota you know talk to your regional biologists talk to uh, your fisheries managers and just see you know ask about where they're stocking and um, what their kind of logic or rationale is and they're they're able to tell you but in a nutshell that's it. Did I answer everything that he asked in that one? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. obviously he wanted to know 
um, you know, out of out of 150 million, you know, why are 148 million of them, uh, um, you know, walleye? But uh, um, you know, you you mentioned obviously throwing them in when they're when they're fry instead of fingerlings, for say. And and I'll I'll even add to that too, just something that I saw earlier today. So I am in town at Sioux Falls attending the Midwest Fish and Wildlife Conference. There's a uh, basically. I'm going to guess it's right around 10 different states that are part of that Midwest uh, conglomerate. And so it's usually uh, representatives or, or member groups from the American Fisheries Society. And then we also have folks from the Wildlife Society. And they're giving professional presentations. I've got one on Wednesday and there's posters. And you're all kind of getting that cross-pollination of projects you're working on, research you're doing, what you're learning. There was a really great poster um, from South Dakota uh, Game Fish and Parks looking at winter kill basins that they had stocked yellow perch trying to prop up fisheries in these really small shallow systems and basically the what they were comparing is stocking age zeros and age ones and and that's another portion you know the i think nick's question was asking about catchables right and i didn't address that side of it what you have to understand is when you're stocking catchable fish that means a lot of time in rearing you have to have a state fish hatchery. You've got to feed those fish. Your costs go up exponentially. So you look at fry for those walleyes. The minute they're hatched, you've basically had to operate an egg take, throw them in a McDonald hatching jar in a hatchery, you know, wait for all the temperature units over the course of two or three weeks until they hatch, and then haul them out and stock them. You don't have to put a lot of time into them. But if you're putting catchable fish in, it's a lot of time and effort, and the costs go up. I think I think what he meant by catchable fish is it's easier for a family or young kids to go out and catch bluegill. Oh, sure. Right. You know than yep. than it is. Uh, you know if 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 we're gonna bring out a couple seven year olds this afternoon, mm-hmm. we're, we're not probably going to chase walleye. Walleyes. We're yeah, we're mm-hmm. going to chase bluegills. We're going to chase you know potentially perch or, or you know and, and I I think that's what he meant by catchable. Yeah, and I think GFP would tell you that those opportunities do exist. They they I don't know what sort of resources they have for putting. I mean, what I've seen on their website, they they put a lot of that information about you could go here. This is the stock history, survey history, histograms of of size of catch, etc. But let me just come back to that poster. You know, the comparison was, all right, what's the life stage that we're stocking and what's the success? And uh, the, the takeaway was um, they also creeled it. So they had uh, angler survey and they're basically showing that we well, don't get that many people that come out to these shallow lakes. Uh, there's not a lot of fishing effort put forth. And many times within a matter of a few years, they winter kill again. So our stocking efforts really weren't worth it. So that was something where they had actually discontinued some perch stocking. I mean, it was worth an attempt on their part. I can see why they would do that because you can really jumpstart a fishery just dropping some fish into those places if they don't winter kill. Yep. Yeah. No, I get that. Uh, next one up, uh, coming from our buddy Gravy. He wants to know why are crappies usually higher up in the water column uh, compared to other fish? Well, I would just attribute it to their predatory tendencies, um, pretty good vision, moving around in a school. Um, pred- visual predators being able to see things, you know, crepusculars that they're active at dawn and dusk, low light periods. And uh, you know, when they suspend like that, they can either, you know, size up prey items above them or below them. Uh, and then they're also kind of right there when uh, the when zooplankton start to come up. Now, when, they're, when you're chasing adults, that's normally not a big part of their diet, but 
you know, at some level, they, they still will partake, you know, if the opportunity presents itself. If you ever cut open a, a black or a white crappie and you look at the backsides of their gill arches, the gill rakers, they're really long and filamentous, and it's perfect for seeding out these plankton out of the water. So if you're suspended mid-water column and that zooplankton starts to rise at, you know, dawn or dusk, you're right there ready to start feeding on them. So it's, it's just part of that you know, a predator avoidance, part of that foraging strategy, and just a little bit different than uh, uh, what you, uh, what other fish do. And like most people notice, especially live scope users, the forward-facing sonar users, they're usually suspended at least a few feet off the bottom. So pretty common to that fish. Yep. And, you know, when we had Dewey Gelm on here uh, um, a few months ago, hell, maybe it's already been eight months ago, but uh he kind of talked that, uh, you know, with, with forward-facing sonar, you're starting to find out that the walleye are suspended right, a little bit more than what people realize. More than what people really, really realize. Yep. And the pike, too. Right, yep. yeah. It's, it's crazy how much, I mean, all the different ones are. They're yep. not just hugging bottom all the time. Yep. Um, Ross Clayton wants to know about the Metro Tiger Muskie program. Yeah, Minnesota's real into that. Um, we do our own egg take where we, you know, that's a tiger muskie lunge for anybody that's wondering is a cross between a northern pike and a pure strain muskie. So you're getting a hybrid there, an F1 hybrid. Uh, so there is a, a program in place out of the Shakopee, Minnesota uh, DNR Fisheries Office to cross those and produce them. And uh, relatively inexpensive. Um, and you kind of get the best of both worlds, right? You think about um, northern pike are really aggressive and, you know, are pretty easy at biting and, and uh, you know, give you a lot of action. And muskie get to a little bigger size. So you, you end up getting these fish that, you know, their top end size is probably 40 to 45 inches, but you have a, a pretty high numbers of them too. So we can inexpensively stock a lot of waters in the metro around population centers where we've got a lot of people and uh, give them that opportunity. So yeah, it's it's mainly focused on the seven county metro area back in Minnesota, but elsewhere around the state, it's almost entirely pure strain muskie stocking. Is uh, New Prague in that seven county metro area there? It is not. Okay. Uh, Scott no, County is not just sewer. So. Okay, just wondering. Just, well, here's, Scott County here, get a picture taken. This is where I was waiting for you to to bring this up since you you like to your your geography, and I'm using your logic tonight. I drove over. To Pig Love, Iowa, from Sioux Falls, and I was here in about twenty minutes. So by your logic, you I, were not I here wanna, in twenty minutes. I just, How fast did you drive? I just want to, I just want to congratulate both Matt and Scott as being urban dwellers. <laughs> a, you didn't get here in twenty minutes. You, you like, and um, and and if you did, you broke the law by going well over the speed limit. Um, a, but B, if somebody said to me. Yeah, he, he lives over by Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You I'm, would like that. It, it, it wouldn't bother me. No. I'm not going to throw a temper tantrum in a Mitchell, <laughs> South Dakota gas station <laughs> like somebody right. else I know. I, I can see a... I can see the the uh, Denny Sanford Center from here, right? <laughs> yeah, you should. Yeah, well, you I should because you're the tallest yeah. building in Rock Crevice <laughs> right now. Yeah. <laughs> the tallest object. All right. While he's here, he's changing the light bulb on the water tower. Yep. Yeah, speaking of uh, speaking of all this, uh, Bradley Pierce wants to know what it's like living in Minneapolis. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Uh, Scott uh, Scott Merwin wants to know uh, 
how does it feel to always be the number two, Scott? And uh, I don't know, Merwin, uh, how does it feel to always be the number five? <laughs> I thought he was saying he's the one that takes all the number twos. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a number two. Uh, Nick Fulton wants to know, uh, are, are you guys seeing any progress with the uh, panfish size uh, um, since the limit got dropped to five a day um, in, in, those, uh, in those certain lakes? Yeah, so we've been asked that question, and likewise, um, a handful of years ago, uh, Minnesota changed its uh, inland northern pike regulation, whereas the whole state used to be a three-pike bag. It's actually gone to a three-managed zone situation, which has different bags and slot limits. And we get this evaluation question that comes up, like, all right, it's been in place for a little while. What are the results? Well, for looking at regularly scheduled surveys, we really get out to some of these places. I've got lakes that I'm fortunate that um, we're a smaller office without as many resources, meaning natural resources, water bodies. We can prioritize where we're going, and we're going into lakes, a couple of lakes, on alternate years. Other stations might visit a lake every five, six, seven years. So you need to get a big enough sample size of getting enough surveys in, sampling enough fish, and being able to look at your size structure data that you're collecting from those surveys to really make anything definitive. So where I'm going with that is there really hasn't been enough time to make a concrete evaluation. What I would bring folks back to is there are places that have had these diminished bag limits that were put in place 20 to 30 years ago that have been very successful. Thus, the reason that we went this way is we had a pretty good back record, backtrack record. And that was in different states or that no, was in Minnesota? In, in Minnesota. Okay. So we have every reason to believe that it should be pretty darn successful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I've got a couple lakes in the area that I work in. And uh, I'd say in five to ten years' time, we can start taking a preliminary look at that. And you'll be looking on a lake individual basis for results, but you're also going to pull some of that data and get an aggregate look across the entire state. And obviously you want to look at an individual level to know, did we reach our, our goals with this regulation or not? Have we improved size structure or maintained size structure? Um, but I, I have a lot of faith in it just because it's got a pretty good proven track record. So I would say, yeah, give it us, give us a little more time and we'll be able to answer that question a little more definitively. Huh. I'm, I'm, I, I guess I, I realize that, uh, nothing like that really ever happens you know, fast, but, uh, you know, yeah, the way you say, you know, five to 10 years, you know, a preliminary, you know, I mean, you're really looking at 20 years before you can really say, Hey, I think, I think that this is working. Yeah, but, for uh, sure. Nothing, nothing happens fast. All right. Um, uh, Biggie wants to know, uh, what is Minnesota going to do with Corabel Lake by Iona? It's a nice place. Needs some fish attention. Are there any plans? Also, what is the state's position on restocking lakes with huge winter kill? Lake Benton, Henricks, and Corabel? Um, I guess we'll start off, uh, um, it's kind of two questions there. Um, is, is Corabel, are, are you familiar with it? So I believe he's referring to all those lakes. Uh, it'd be Wyndham's area, uh, the okay. Wyndham, Wyndham Fisheries Office. Uh, definitely reach out to your local fisheries office for questions on, um, you know, what what the latest is, what's going on with the management plan, what have you found, um, what does the most recent survey show you. 
that you know and you there's 29 different area supervisors around the state i'm one of them they're going to all tell you the same thing like you're going to have to talk to that local office unless it was a lake i fished or had some reason to look at the management plan or survey report i really can't really comment too much on them um, so i couldn't answer biggie's question that way um, but to his question about what do you do after winter kill uh, most of these lake management plans where you do have frequency of winter kill, it's actually written into the plan. And in other places, if we run into it and it's entirely unexpected, we still go back to that lake management plan and we go, okay, what are the primary management species? What species do we have reason to believe have been eliminated is probably a little too strong because they just get thinned out. But is it have they been knocked back enough that it needs a little bit of help? And then we will do some supplemental stocking. We will try to put those fish back in. And we're, we're trying to do it in a targeted fashion. When we see winter kill, it's actually an opportunity, right? That's a vacuum. Um, we've got a clean slate to work with. Let's go in and put fish in that can have an immediate impact, either at young life stages that they can take off, or we'll put adults in that we are counting on to get a spawn off. We love putting pre-spawn bass, bluegills, crappies in. Because th you think about the timing of that, right? After the ice goes out, pike and perch are spawning almost immediately. Suckers, then there's a little leg, then you know walleyes like a week later, and then much later in the year is when you see your, at least on the game fish side of things, your centrarchids, your bass, your panfish. Uh, so you have a little bit of time with those. That's why the, the, the thing to do is get them in pre-spawn so they can get a year class off on their own. So we absolutely pay attention to that. We, we actually like winter kill, as I think I may have talked about on a different episode. Um, winter kill is opportunity for us either in rearing ponds and sometimes even in lakes just to reset clean slate start over build it up huh yep um you know to, to piggyback off that i know you kind of talked about different uh, different species there and whatnot uh this is one that i actually my brother and i were talking about today but uh um, you, you hear a lot of the old timers here in Rock Rapids talk about that they used to catch crappie, like out of our Rock River. They used to catch bluegills. Um, when you look at a lot of the old postcards of, of Lake Okaboji, the the fish that they're holding, I mean, I, I know for a fact that uh, uh, West Lake Okaboji used to have paddlefish in it. And, uh, you know, just, just some different stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the people that, that are holding uh uh, pictures is is like you know a lot of northern pike and whatnot but uh very few walleyes um and and it does seem to me like over time you know over a hundred years or over 80 years or whatever you know different species kind of take off I'm, I'm looking right over right now at at uh okaboji and uh it really seems like crappies are really yeah. coming on over at okaboji and you know five years ago like you know that just wasn't really once in a while. yeah just wasn't really a thing what is it that makes you know different uh, uh fish species you know kind of take off and you know then all of a sudden you know because because we just talked about you know uh the the dnrs are not doing a, a ton of stocking of crappies so it's not like oh you know finally you know they they started stocking crappies and now the population's starting to get up i know that okaboji and and the rock river aren't uh in in your realm of whatever but i'm sure that this happens up in your area also yeah absolutely i mean that's the beauty of uh, uh watching what happens with lake survey results and paying close attention over time which most of you know your natural resource fisheries management agencies are doing they're paying attention to those trends that's a really hard thing for the layman to understand is the populations of fish 
are not static. They are very dynamic. They're fluctuating like like you're indicating, Scott. They're going up and they're going down, and that's natural. That's our expectation. There's a range of normality of what we would expect, highs and lows. And they don't they do go through peaks and valleys. I talk to folks about when we take when we do a survey, it's a snapshot in time. And if we do that, we usually do complete a survey in one week, five 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 work days, set on one day, lift on four other days, reset where all these nets are, index the population, get an idea of what the catch per unit effort is, and look at that survey for that year, and then we don't come back for five years. That's one week out of 260 weeks, a snapshot in time. Sometimes you catch it at the top of the roller coaster for those fish, for that particular fish species, and it's just real sh- looking great, you know. You're big fish and lots of them. Other times you're really bottomed out. So it, it they ebb and flow, and you have to, you know, normalize yourself over time as you read those results, or if you're a biologist, you're looking over it, what, what's, go into the file and see what have we seen on this lake. But they do, they peak and flow. And getting at the what if, what's, or getting at the why, it's like, well, you talk about crappies. Like, it might be a situation where everything lined up just perfect. Water temperatures were right, and crappie are notorious for this inconsistent recruitment. Maybe we finally got a, a spring that for two weeks the wind didn't blow all that hard, and it got warm in a hurry, and the zooplankton had a good hatch. So when those young crappies were hatched out, they had all kinds of food right in front of them. Uh, so there are just times where the planets and the stars have to align to get off a really good year class, and then there's other times that it doesn't work that way. And with crappie being an early spring spawner, it sometimes works out that way. You know, the other aspect you're talking about is, you know, once upon a time this fishery had paddlefish or it had this different fish species assemblage. Those historical records end up being critically important. I know back in Minnesota, you know, we go back 60 to 100 years, depending on the lake, and there were some very good you know you think well back then geez did those people even know what was what well there actually were some folks that had very good scientific level training and were correctly identifying a number of different fish species cataloging those species vouchering them putting them in preservatives sending them off to museum collections so we can absolutely document fish species assemblages at some of these places and that allows you to kind of know what was there and have a comparison. And just like we're talking about short-term changes, year-to-year variation, there's long-term change too. We're absolutely seeing that. Again, bring it, throwing it all the way back to this Midwest Fish and Wildlife Conference, a really good presentation by the folks in Wisconsin who are seeing marked changes to their nat- natural walleye lakes. Those lakes are clearing up, they're warming, they're becoming more hospitable to bass, and we can talk about lots of real-world situations like that. You talk about your rock river. Tell me God isn't real after you <laughs> something like that. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, even your, your, your rock river, your river situations, you know, what is the level of impairment? We're, we're in Minnesota using uh, constitutional legacy amendment tax dollars to uh, get out and survey in lakes and rivers and look at impairments and look at the fish that are there. Are they tolerant? Are they intolerant? Um, what are they representing and how do they compare historically? So you learn a lot from the fish that you find and, and you learn a lot about how the habitat has changed. Yep. All right. Um, Chris Lewis uh, wants to know, what does it take for a bluegill to grow to 10 inches? Is that more genetics or is that just age? So this is how we'll answer it since we're talking about the reduced bag limits. And the biggest thing that we need is time. We need to give these fish time because it's both, right? Um, 
at the end of the day, that, that reduced bag just means that less fish are going home with anglers and more fish are given time because they do grow extremely slow. If you're going to throw an average out there, just average, average, average for Minnesota, it's probably an inch a year. And that's variable. There's some places like Osakis where it's really fast and um, we can probably get them to eight, nine, ten inches in, you know, what, three, four, five years. And then there's other places it's even slower where they might only get to eight inches in a dozen years. Uh, but overall, it's probably somewhere in that one inch a year, and they just need more time. Genetics is a portion of it, but it's not that big of a thing. It's it, Comparatively, it's like folks that argue about what do we need for white-tailed deer to grow larger antlers. Well, they need time too, um, and they need good forage. In this case, for our fish, it's probably, yeah, they're going to grow faster if they have really good forage and it's really productive, but if you can give them more time, again, going back to what we said earlier about northern latitudes and fish, growing slower but living longer if you give them enough time they'll get there i like that um i got one all right you know i like to fish plastics during the winter months and stuff like that <clears throat> like based on forage like what they're eating in the water like early ice what are let's just go with bluegills what are what kind of plastic should i be using like throughout the ice season like does it change does it fluctuate i mean scott's always trying to force feed him a wax worm <laughs> what uh nothing wrong with that you give them what they want <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that but i'm just saying like maybe i'm way off on some of my plastic choices sometimes is there like certain profiles that a guy should be trying to use more than not my mind is going back to uh doing an interview this last year so i wrote an article in ice fishing annual uh <clears throat> that was talking about how tournament anglers get out and target fish and i had a chance to talk to ryan hilla and clayton kettering and clayton made this point of saying there's so many folks that get out in the winter and they're fishing with stuff that's too big it's they're fishing with medium or medium heavy rods that they've bought off the shelf and they're fishing with six or eight pound line and they're using these great big jigs they talk about how those guys are fishing with two three four five millimeter uh tungsten jigs and getting as small as they can and the, the comment that they made about everyone being oversized, I find to be correct, but also just what are they eating? And that's the observational side that they've seen as, as practicing tournament anglers of when you are looking at the guts, and this is a great thing, whether it's summer or winter, is you catch a fish and you knife it, go see what's in that gut. And you're going to find a lot of very small objects. It's a lot of zooplankton and it's a lot of larval insects that are still active in the wintertime your lakes are chock full of a lot of larval insects so when you think about bloodworm patterns those are chironomids that are rooted down in the substrate those are those little non-biting midges that you see in the summer buzzing around um, you're going to see little mayfly larvae you're going to see uh, dragonfly nymphs you're going to see all kinds of of, of uh, aquatic insects that are out there. So answering your question, Matt, when you think about putting that into matching the hatch and plastics, it's segmented body types, appendages, extra legs, you know, anything that's going to look insect-like, copepod bodies that are mimicking zooplankton. Yeah, they're larger profile than what a real zooplankton is, but that's the idea is that matching the hatch and, and trying to downsize, really getting a little more finesse just because two things, what are they eating? And also that idea of metabolism. It's a cold-blooded organism. It's moving real slow in the winter. You ever know? I mean, they're not just coming in and hammering it. Some days they are, but many times there's a lot more days than not that it's a very, very, almost indetectable light bite. Uh, so it's it's not the same metabolism. It's not the same voraciousness. 
you know, slow it down, downsize it, and try to key in on those smaller organisms that those panfish are eating this time of year. What about like colors? Is there like, does colors really have to do much with it or is it just kind of what you're comfortable with? I think what you're comfortable with, I always say, and you know, everybody's, it seems like to be a polarizing topic. You either really believe in the color thing or you don't. And for me, and I think everyone's in agreement on this is location's probably most important being where the fish want to be and then putting something in front of their face. And then if it's a really tough bite, it could be color. It's kind of one of your last variables that's least likely to impact it in my, in my mind and most of my experience. So that my answer to your question there, Matt would be, yeah, whatever you're comfortable, comfortable with, because you know, these, these microplastics are absolutely amazing what they're able to produce these days the quality of the plastic um, the amount of movement that you can impart with it and just continuous movement and yeah the, the range of colors so whatever you like yeah um david tabar tabor i don't know i might have butchered that name apologize um he says in the area I live, I have a spring-fed river that is stocked by the DNR every year with almost 50,000 brown trout. The river is 52 miles from start to where it dumps into a large tributary. They dump the trout because of the spring-fed aspect and there are holdovers. But would it be foolish to think that the larger browns would be hanging in the non-spring larger tributary as it warms up? Do you believe that they would try to migrate back into the spring-fed water? David's on the money with that one. Um, we do see that in Minnesota. We've got, and probably in other states, a leg cramp. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my. He's about to go down. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Rookie the, over here. So. <laughs> take take the headphones off. Go walk. Right. Walk. I walk. I, I walked it off. I'm ready for all the right, Super Bowl. All right, good. Okay, yeah. We're back. We're I'm back, not missing guys. This might be our first Holy injury. Holy You're not going to make me sit out one play, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, David's right on the money. Um, these browns, it's amazing they're probably more receptive to spending time in warm water than any of the other stream trout species in this country. Um, Vermilion River, Minnesota, there's designated portions of the Vermilion. So this is a tributary of the Mississippi where it's cold water, there's springs, and it's, it's designated as being the cold water stretch where you can catch trout and they're stocked. And there's holdovers and these browns move down, <clears throat> downstream, and they hang out there. And at, when you get to be a large fish and you're a predatory fish, you know, if you think about trout and we want to throw dainty flies and we want to get cutesy with insects, uh-uh. When you're a big brown, you want to eat meat. And, Bunk nasty browns. <laughs> yep. You know, the big hook-jawed uh, browns, absolutely. You're throwing big patterns. You're throwing crankbaits. Um, when you're outside of the designated stretches, minnows, whatever you want to throw at them and you're going big and putting it in front of their face root river down in southeastern minnesota same idea folks get down into the warm water stretches where the river really gets a lot bigger before it gets to the mississippi and there are folks that will get on drift boats or canoes and they'll fish the banks on areas where they know there's cold water inlets either springs or small tribs and there are brown trout hanging on the edge of those things giants that they're catching doing that they're also catching like northern pike and walleyes that are sitting really? in the same spots Just waiting for a piece sitting of shoulder to shoulder yeah. with the yeah. yep. so it he's on the right money and and will they make a move back up well they're going to go where where they find the temperature suitable so at some point they might make that move up towards that spring all right um 
I don't know. I think after that, we might be all into uh, the joking ones. Um, so I'm going to start off with uh, um, just an absolute miserable human being out in western uh, Nebraska. Uh, Robbie Brembrandt wants to know, why do hormones in humans drive fish you target? Uh, walleye fishermen increase testosterone and bass fishermen lean towards increased estrogen. Uh, I heard it's pretty complicated, but he can't wait for the results of the Harvard study. Um, one thing I do know, uh, you know, and Robbie uh, is is absolutely um, uh, the poster child for this, is uh, might have increased testosterone, but uh, definitely lower IQ levels. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it... I mean, good, good for you, Robbie. Good for you. <laughs> no comment. Come on. Come on. Let's take some he shots at Robbie. Of, he probably got one of his boys to type that for him because we know that he's not smart. I'm going to yeah. be nice. Those I'm gonna, are big words for Robbie. I'm going to be nice to R2 because I want to be able to hunt with him like his kids. <laughs> <laughs> right? Some truth to that. Right? Some truth to that. Uh, uh, drippy Kyle Lynn up. Uh, um, you're on the south side of Minneapolis, Scott. Uh, Kyle Lynn is on the north side of Minneapolis. Uh, he wants, uh, why are walleye such a superior fish over largemouth bass? Is it because they piss excellent? Now, Mike, you can't get pissed off at me for that one because uh, uh, that this was is a what, question. That, that was what, yep, I'm, I'm just reading. Um, is it because they piss excellent or because largemouth are so easy to catch due to their incredible lack of intelligence? Big words for little Kyle Lynn. Um, uh, <laughs> I would say one foot at a time, but it's about eight inches at a time as feet are. So, <laughs> so, so do you, do you ever have walleyes that are eating? I mean, do you think largemouth bass are a part of walleyes diet? There's been a number of diet studies. In fact, you know, you had you had mentioned to me if you wanted to bring anybody else on the pod, although I'm not sure we'd be kissing lips probably to try to hug this microphone, but. If I were, and the truth is, I'm already third best biologist, and if I brought another guy, I'd be dropping down and yeah. guy or gal, and I, I right. want to stay in the medals. So. Yeah, <laughs> you got to stay on the podium somehow. <laughs> but I, I mention it just because today I was uh, sitting there next to uh, Camden Glade, and uh, if you go on Instagram, Cam- Camden Glade, yeah, he does. Uh, is he a big antler guy? No, um, this is he. If you go on Instagram uh, and search for hashtag fish puke. He did a lot of his research on uh, fish diet. So you asked me the question about who's eating what. And uh, he spent a little bit of time on bass, and there's quite a bit in the literature about what all these different fish species are eating. And that was, you know, bringing it full circle, we were talking about Wisconsin and system change that's going on. That's one of those perceptional battles, too, of, well, geez, we have a lot more bass that are proliferating out here and less walleye. Is it is it a direct competition thing? Are they actually being eaten? And, again, that's going back to those diet studies. You just you see a little bit. I'm not going to say it's a zero amount, but it's a very small portion of the diet where you're going to see, you know, small enough walleyes that are going to be consumed by bass. And of course, they make the rounds in places like Target Walleye, and you guys get a kick out of it when somebody posts a picture of emptying out a gut or doing a, a gastric lavage and regurgitating fish out of the out of the mouth and finding out what's in the diet when a bass eats a walleye. Like that just makes your day, right? It does. <laughs> I mean, bass are the superior predator. Right. Like there is no getting around it. Well, there's this. Um, in places outside of their range, they actually behave like an invasive species. So they've been introduced in many places, including Japan. 
Largemouth bass are kicking a lot of butt in Japan. Bluegills, too. Anywhere you put them, anywhere you put them, they just... Yeah. But, but, yeah. The walleye is the submissive of the fish world. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> just lay there and take it. Yep. Okay. Bass domination. Uh, Bressler wants to know if there's any plans in the works to uh, gift the western uh, quarters of, of the state of South Dakota asking for... No, Minnesota. Of the state to South Dakota, yeah. Yeah, and and I know that you've been in talks with that, uh, um, seeing if, they, if they'll gift it over. Um, well, there was a legislator, I believe, in Mankato that had proposed that annexation, so I don't know. I'll have to, maybe it's not that too far-fetched. Yeah, huh? maybe move to Lake Benton. <laughs> yeah. nope. East Dakota. Um, Tyler Hicks wants to know, are Scott and Matt as cool in real life as they sound on the podcast? There's only one right answer here, so that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna that's say, obviously. I don't know if you can see over there, but that's a gun safe. <laughs> if you want to head back to Sioux Falls tonight? There is only one right answer. Um, if I'm not found tomorrow, I'm probably taxidermized in the basement of Scott's studio. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all we really got as far as uh, the the wild about? questions. You got oh, any Chris other? Peters had one on there. <laughs> Legos or erector set? <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> the answer is yes. Filled in both. Yep. I think that I kind of skipped around. I'm trying to see if I missed one, but no, I think that's uh, pretty well it. Matt, you got any other uh, questions that you want to shoot off? Um, let's see here. I mean, we're at a spot in the show now where we can do good nor stories and we can wrap this right. up. But uh, well, I can mention while you guys are thinking of questions, um, you know, just because it's. It is pretty cool um, what we're able to do to come out to Midwest Fish and Wildlife uh, Conference and the talks that you see. This was just one day. There's two more days left. And, uh, you know, I got to see a really cool presentation on uh, radio telemetry with muskies up in Green Bay. Um, they're seeing, they're, they're trying to reestablish that population. That's an area of concern, um, again, because it's an industrial town, recovering uh, fish populations in that area where you probably had pollution in the past, returning and restoring the fish community, bringing back muskie. Muskie is Wisconsin state fish. Uh, and that's been underway since I believe the presentation said like the mid to late eighties and they're seeing numbers. I mean, that's usually what you get out of the gate is this incredible fishery because it's like the founder effect. They're, they're in low density and they take off and grow like crazy. It's becoming a nice trophy fishery. I know Brett Alexander is guiding up there, a few other folks. Um, but they're trying to actually figure out, like, where are they doing spawning? Where, where is the spawning actually happening? So they're tracking these fish movements, both in the, you know, in the bay and up to Sturgeon Bay. Um, what tributaries are they going back and using? Uh, really cool master's project that's going on up there through a, a student at Wisconsin Stevens Point. Uh, so another presentation from some folks in northern Michigan uh, looking at burbit. Burbit are getting a lot of attention, right? Eel pout, burbit. Um, we know so little about where they spend their time and their their habits. And this was really cool, really fascinating. Um, they are looking at synchrony of when do these spawning events happen, and they're really isolated. Specific rivers are going at certain times, and lakes are at different times. I remember talking to Jared Houston uh, up in Duluth Superior area, and he noticed on the St. Louis River that they were spawning much earlier. Uh, in the wintertime and what we're noticing and what they've shown in some of their work is they believe that the period of viability for females for their eggs to be fertilized is about 12 hours 
And interestingly, Atlantic cod, which is in the same family, they know from other research on that, commercially important fish species uh, for subsistence fisheries, commercial fisheries, those eggs are viable for about three hours. So wow. they, they have to get these spawning balls together and synchronize to be able to get these egg fertilized and make them viable. And then fascinating, think about that this is a winter spawning fish, a very rare situation in, in the upper Midwest. Those eggs can take anywhere from 40 to 70 days before uh, they hatch. So they're in water that's barely above freezing and that embryonic development is that slow. And there was a lot of talk about the synchrony of how this all works and does it make sense to hatch early and grow faster or have larger body size or have more egg yolk to use. Um, they're measuring all these variables and looking at these outcomes and the goal that one of the things is we actually need that variability because that's going to cover more range of environmental conditions and change that may come in the future. So really just some cool stuff or think about, you know, if you'd have told somebody 20 years ago that you're going to be studying vervet, looking at reproduction, yeah, right. what for, right. you know, and yeah. today we look at that as a, a fish that people are caring a lot more about. Um, I know there's some great talks coming tomorrow. Um, some a lot of a lot of panfish talks, really cool panfish talks. Some technology talks. We're gonna get updates. Barotrauma, forward-facing sonar, uh, creel growth on on bluegill protection. What you know, the very question we fielded tonight: What's going on with those bag limit uh, evals and what we're seeing? So maybe some preliminary information on that. Um, I'm trying to remember because uh, it's all kind of running together. But oh. Um, Here's, a, here's another cool one where they put um, GoPro cameras in uh, portions of Lake Michigan, again, back in that Green Bay area, and looked at um, angler disruption of, of spawning uh, smallmouth bass. And, you know, a lot of people get real hot and bothered about bed fishing. Well, the reality is there's not a single published paper that shows it has a population-level impact. We can fail tons of those nests and still have plenty of recruitment. Uh, on smallmouth bass and what was being tracked in that study was um, how many times were these fish being bothered like they had GoPro cameras that were put inside these things that look like rocks so the anglers never knew that their actions are being recorded interesting notes about angler behavior there because there were certain sections that were closed that were still being fished <laughs> some anglers that didn't know the rules um, but we actually got to watch some of these videos and, and watch, you know, one was clearly a Ned rig and the fish picked it up and got hooked and was off nest for a little while. Um, and just listening to the researchers talk about, you know, very rarely, at least in, in their study, did they see a lot of egg predators move in. They did document it. They showed one video where bluegills and pumpkins came in immediately and just sucked up the eggs. But they also talked about round goby like around Gilby being very gun shy to move in on these smallmouth nests because they've seen all their buddies getting slipped yeah. up <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they move and they move a lot slower so I said it will in there first Ben doesn't get sucked up I'm going in there Leroy so from an aesthetics perspective that was pretty darn cool to see the see that video study and basically what it showed was um one of the outcomes was you don't want to be facing lake the, the 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 beds that were facing lake michigan had the most nest failure not at all having anything to do with anglers visiting them it was the fact that when you're facing lake michigan huge waves come yeah. in before yep. your nest and very cold water washes in yeah. which is very tough on those if you're in the bay 
you're usually in better bass habitat it's warmer and even if you're getting visited by lots of anglers it doesn't matter and again you only need a few nests to do well uh, to, to produce a population so some really cool stuff some really cool stuff students are doing academics are doing universities um, uh, uh, you know management agencies a lot of really great talks I could probably go on and on about all the cool stuff but there's only so much time no no, no. very cool better watch out next time you roll up to a bedded bath and <laughs> that's right go throwers in there <laughs> You always pee on them <laughs> whenever you find get the pollen yeah, off the, get the pollen off so I can off the surface so I can see the water. Yeah. GoPros don't got that good a zoom. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna lie. Like, no. hey, give me. It's like the it's like the bluegill study. Give me some time. Okay? Give me some time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't just rush into something like this. Give me some time here, right? This is only five years we've been doing this. I mean, oh. an inch a year. <laughs> Oh man, man, that's a grower. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 like I said, I get in trouble for doing any any swearing, but I mean, Matt, Matt comes in with the sexual innuendos on every single episode. That was, I was talking about bluegill. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah I, I get that, and I get that. Um, one other uh, point of housekeeping: uh, Bassmaster Fantasy. Uh, if you want to get over to www.bassmasterfantasy.com, uh, make a uh, make yourself a, an account, an account and, yeah. uh, go and look up uh Midwest angler podcast. Uh, password is dirt bags. Um, we, we have a, uh, Midwest angler podcast, uh, fantasy fishing Facebook group. Yep. So if you search that out, uh, on Facebook, you can get in there. Um, we can talk you through, uh, how to get signed up and, and do whatever. Do yep. It's fun to play. Yep. Absolutely. So uh, that's one more thing. Uh, Maybe this Kelly. year I think I might deny Rich Lingren, to be honest. Yeah, I yeah. Him, I can kick him out. That's not a bad idea. You know, yeah, I, just, that's, like, I yeah. just can't keep getting signed in now. I keep typing it in. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> just, it must be just, something on your end yeah, or our end. Yeah. No, no finally that uh, cybersecurity deal's working, yes, keeping right, him out. Right. So, uh all right, um, golly, I know that there is something else that I had told myself I needed to talk about tonight. I got the DA boxes. I got uh, the James Van Velf Tyson uh, rescue guy. Uh, he'll be on next week. I know I'm missing something, and I'll think about it right after we quit recording. But, uh, um, yeah, whatever the case, uh, we'll... We'll cut over to uh, Good News Stories of the Week, brought to you by Freedom Brew in Larchwood, Iowa. Um, speaking of Freedom Brew in Larchwood, Iowa, Austin Bruggeman, owner of Freedom Brew, and, and his wife, Brianna, of course, uh, down in the Cancun airport last week, yep. ran into a dirt bag down in the Cancun airport. So if you are if you uh, were, were the person that talked to Austin in the airport, um, that's way cool. So, uh, um, yeah. I yeah. guess that is... Uh, we both had Freedom Brew this past weekend. We did. We did. That Freedom Buzz, I'm telling you, you got to... What was I like, doing? That's what I got, Freedom yeah, Buzz, hot. You, you that was awesome. It. You got to get it. What was I doing over there? I had dropped Grady off. Yeah, yeah, me and Slate. Slate got himself a hot chocolate and, yep. And Finn was in the back end. She was whining for a pup cup, but I was just like, no. Yeah, yeah that's... Sorry. I get Slate a pup cup. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, that dog treat for a while. Uh, this week's uh, good news story. Uh, I told him I was going to do it, so I'm going to do it. Uh, 
Uh, I went out fishing yesterday on Sunday uh, with Ramrod and my son Grady. We bounced around Westlake Okaboji and we just could not get it done. It was a struggle. Uh, I thought I was going to get skunked on my first two ice fishing outings of 2023-2024 uh, season. And uh, thank goodness for Alex Christensen. Uh he shot me a message, said that he was out fishing. He was doing pretty good. Uh, me, Ramrod, and uh, Ramrod, Grady, and I. I can do and I saw yeah, you. I you saw Grammar like, Nazi over there. Was the yeah. Podcast table. <laughs> he here. started shaking. Almost got another cramp. Yep. Uh, we we went over there with uh, with Alex and uh, proceeded to catch a few fish. Uh, good enough. We we only had about an hour to be over there. Ramrod and I, or uh, Grady and I. Uh, pulled it off and uh, yeah, felt good. So uh, thank you to Alex Christensen for uh, inviting us over to uh, to your spot and uh, putting us on some fish. Matt? My turn. Yep. Uh, mine's gonna be. We talked about it last week about getting a South Dakota pheasant license and going after number. That's fi- right. Rooster number fifty. And uh, I loaded up Finn on. I bought my license on Friday and I loaded up Finn and we went and uh, tooled around south of Brookings a little ways and. Uh, Jumped on some public ground, just pulled the map up. My brother Brant kind of shot me in the right direction, but uh, the place he told me to go to first had somebody there, so we just kind of drove around until we found another one, walked it, saw a lot of birds. Um, unfortunately, they were late season birds, and they were getting up where we weren't, but we got one rooster to sit tight, and I was able to drop that one, and I actually ended up missing a couple more. should have had a limit, but we got the one to get to 50, and then the next day uh, we went with some of Brant's buddies, and uh we ended up having a pretty good day where we got 22 and uh finley retrieved five yesterday so she ended the season with uh 55 birds retrieved so that's a workout it was a it was a good time she was tired on we were both tired on saturday because it was cattails and it wasn't like quick little hunts we were out in this that one public area for about i don't know three hours so we were both beat up pretty good Nice. My good news story of the week. Uh, my daughter, Quinn, is a middle schooler, so it's the first time that she's on the ABC grading system. Ooh. And we kind of, she's always been pretty academically inclined, and we've, you know, wanted that for her, and more importantly, that she wants it for her. Uh, she finished out her first semester with a 4.0, so we took her out. Uh, the treat was to go ice fishing, and uh, she did pretty well. She's kind of getting in, getting pretty good. Uh, as an ice angler, she's did some bass fishing. We did quite a bit of hunting, but you guys will appreciate this. The first fish of 2024 was a largemouth bass. Yep. Second fish of 2024 was a largemouth bass. Yes. <laughs> so we've had a couple outings. She's caught some bass. She got her personal best uh, crappie at 13 and a half inches. Um, real nice looking specimen. And yeah, we had a great out. Uh, time together to kind of celebrate that so happy Heck to have yeah. that Heck awesome. yeah i also want to give a short shout out to uh court cox oh yeah um just establishing dominance as uh, the top dog uh, there on down calf creek um but but more importantly give a shout out to all those cox uh guys um i believe uh uh don and clayton ketterling uh fourth place uh garrett and court ended up in ninth but i believe that they miscounted and they should have like jumped up not, to seventh not or they miscounted 
Garrett miscount. Right, right. He was using this that mustache as a count tool. <laughs> All the hairs. Only, yeah. He only got up to like twenty three or something like that, and they could have kept twenty five or something. So it's a little wispy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, Court's gonna have a big, better mustache by in two weeks, I guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Zach and his buddy, I think they finished thirteenth. But uh, I think that we're gonna have to send a new sign out there. And uh, we can pull down the Zach and Aaron Cox sign at the end of the driveway and just put up Court Cox because <laughs> yep. uh, just just flexing nuts. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, I believe that uh, is episode 252. Like I mentioned, uh, hopefully next week we will have uh, Rob on, uh, one of the rescuers uh, from the James Van Veltizen story. Uh, Mockentoon, we appreciate you swinging in and being a part of this uh, episode 252. But... Uh, Lots of Mike's money. You hear that, Mike? You hear that, Mike? Funny more where that came from. Boom. I love it. Later. <laughs>